You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Mob are doing the work, are doing the work and theorising race on the run because of the urgency in this place when it comes to racial violence. And so we must not extract that knowledge and claim it as our own. We must amplify it, cite it, recognise it and honour that thinking. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, first of all, um, I'd like to acknowledge this event is taking place on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to elders, past, present. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, so this panel event is presented by the Wheeler Centre in conjunction with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. And it's called Showing Up, First Nations Advocacy in Protest in honour of this year's NAIDOC theme, Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up. My name is Narita Waite and I'm lucky enough to be the Chief Executive Officer of the Victorian National Legal Service and I'm actually very honoured to moderate this deadly panel. Some who I know and have had the pleasure of panelling with before and other new faces. So we've got Professor Chelsea Watego whose amazing book, Another Day in the Colony, we are celebrating tonight and is available by, for purchase here. Um, and I believe she will be signing them later on tonight. Apparently, yes. <laughs> and if not, she's now committed everyone, so thank me <laughs> later. Um, we have April Day, a proud Yorta Yorta Wamba Wamba and Barup woman and founder of the Dajua Foundation. And Jonathan who is a Gamulare, Dungati and Gambanya man and hip-hop performer, mentor and activist. So everybody feel very impressed and very lucky to be here. So we're going to start off with Chelsea since she's at our far left. Chelsea, in your book, you unashamedly celebrate black excellence and it would be great to start this evening talking about the things we love about our culture and the importance of standing up for the things that we are proud of. <coughs> Okay. Um, I mean, I don't want to just kind of universalise and romanticise blackfellas, but it's NAIDOC week, so <laughs> may as well. Um, look, I think um, for me, um, blackfellas just are the most courageous, the most generous and most humorous. Um, and, and I think that often gets lost in the stories that are told about us um, mm. in the midst of, um, you know, all of the challenges we face and, you know, the, the truth of those experiences. Um, we often, um, I mean, as black brothers, we know it, um, but I think in this place we have to consciously remind ourselves of how beautiful we are, um, you know, to be dehumanised as a people constantly, um, we have to actively um, remind ourselves of our humanity. And I think that's the beauty of Blackfellas, though, is that we offer a kind of humanity that um, the settlers have yet to realise, um, a humanity in its fullest sense. Um, and I just think, you know, our mob have been so generous to the settlers here, um, uh, so accommodating, um, even in the face of, you know, the ways in which we've been brutalised. Um, but I also think... Um, just so courageous and, you know, I've always gone about this when it comes to race, like we don't just stick up for our own people, we stick up for a whole lot of other people who are beneficiaries of our labour in this place and I, I just love that I, that's my people um, and that I've been afforded that same generosity um, 
and we call each other out as well, good ways. Um, and in a really, we have an accountability in our own communities that I think is really important that we offer each other, um, which too is a, is a real gift. Um, so yeah, I think that's what mm. I love about Blackfellas. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that I think we bring new meaning to the term grace under fire. Um, and it's particularly important to celebrate those good things in our community and the strength of our resilience because there are children and young people and adults and mob who are isolated from community and don't always have um, those inspiring things to look forward to and just see what's purported in the news day in, day out. So 100% um, agree with you and celebrate those things. And does anybody else have anything that they want to add to that? No, I summed up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, April, last year you launched the Dajwa Foundation to support the families of our mob who have lo lost loved ones in custody. You and your family have been fighting for justice for your mum, Auntie Tanya Day, since she passed away in police custody back in 2017. What are the types of support that Dajwa provides and what drives you to do this work? Yeah, um, it's been a really intense year which is really unfortunate. I actually would prefer not to have a job working at Dajwa. I don't want to be this busy because uh, the fact that I am this busy goes to show that, um, you know, circumstances of our mob leading uh, to dying in custody aren't actually getting any better and it's continuing to be ignored. So, um, yeah, there's a huge number of supports and, you know, the way that I interact with families um, is the way that I would interact with my own. Um, having gone through that and that lived experience, to me, it's just really important that they know that they have that love and support with us and it's that holistic support. So I guess um, we come into contact with families at different times, but uh, a lot of the time it is after they have just lost their loved ones. So, you know, for us, it's making contact with them and just actually, you know, sending our love and condolences and having that yarn uh, so they got someone to speak to, you know, linking them in with... Uh, legal services. Um, we help them, you know, organise their funerals so we have that financial support there, uh, you know, get them to and from where they need to, whether it be for their court proceedings or to the uh, the funeral of their loved one. And um, that extends through to the coronial inquest. Uh, so we make sure that they're actually able to get there because, you know, it's for a lot of our family members, you know, you sit in court for weeks up to months at a time and you really do have to choose between going to that coronial inquest with a loved one or you go to work, you know, to be able to pay your bills. So that um, is really important that they've got that support there. And um, during that time, you know, we're obviously having that yarn to them about campaign strategies, help them with the campaign capacity building, as well as media training, because a lot of the time, like, you know, as we all know, a lot of loved ones don't actually... Um, get to the point of having their loved one story told, um, it's actually ignored and a lot of the time it's not in the media and sometimes not even community members know that's how um, it's not spoken about. So empowering the families that if they do feel comfortable enough uh, to be able to speak to media so we can get their story out there so that even if, you know, the courts and the government and police and the prisons try to silence us, that those families feel empowered enough that they can speak their truth and so everyone else can know who their loved one was and not just another statistic of someone that died in custody, but who they really were. Mm. 
Mm. That type of work that you that your foundation does uh, in terms of making sure that mob aren't just rendered a statistic is obviously resource intensive and you've talked a lot about what you do, but how do you support that work resource-wise? Yeah, so uh, Dajua is a national... Uh grassroots organisation, it's a not-for-profit. So we don't take any government funding and that's solely to maintain our independence. You know, we are resisting against the government um, and the violence that they are continuously inflicting upon us. Um, so, yeah, we just... It's things like this, you know, having a yarn uh, so people are aware of what we're doing, you know, getting those donations, fundraising um, and philanthropy. So if, you know, if those three things aren't working, uh, was not working. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely not anything anyone can pay me to take money from government. You know, we've had offers before from, you know, Department of Justice and to me it uh, doesn't make any sense. There's no way I'm going to allow, you know, our organisation to be compromised like that um, but is not going to let them think that they actually have the power to be able to dictate what we do with our families. Mm. And I'm sure many listening right now are uh, ready and willing to donate to Dajwa. So how do they actually do that, April? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you can actually go to Dajwa's website and there's a donate tab and um, it's, it's great to obviously have those donations but it's really good if it's a regular donation and, you know, I always spin that yarn of $5 a week, you know, out of your paycheck, like you spend more on, on coffee. coffee here in Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. You know, I spent $7 for a coffee the other day. So, <laughs> you know, if you that actually um, is setting up the foundation to continue that support and... Um, you know, when I had pitched and I had that yarn about the families I wanted to support, and I was like, all right, you know, we'll support 10 families for this amount. We've supported over 20 families, you know, and that that's horrific. And there is another 20 other families that are gearing up for inquest that I now need to support. And it's really important that people are aware of, you know, what it takes to support those families, but the dollars that are actually attached to that because it it makes a difference whether they're actually able to go to the coronial inquest and if they can't go to the coronial inquest, they can't apply the pressure that they need within the court system and it literally impacts everything right down to the recommendations that the coroner gives and the systemic change that the families are able to receive. So it's it's a lot. So donate, please. <laughs> Jonathan, you had to support your youngest brother while you were still very young yourself. Are you able to speak about how child protection and legal system impacted you and how you've worked to build your life after your experience with Corey Court? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll split this pretty much in half. Um, with it's, I've actually got three younger brothers. Um, the whole reason that I kind of had to try and support them to stay, you know, connected to not just community but culture and myself and... It's it's because we're from Moree, New South, you know. That's that's where the rest of my family are, so it's all Gummaray way. Um and living in Melbourne at that time, like my mum passed away and we've got different dads, so their dad is white follower, um and mum was pretty much like their connection, apart from me. Uh and she passed away when I was thirteen years old, you know. So my youngest brother, Jacob, um, only just turned 14, like, this year. So that's, you know, it's a huge leap. And I wasn't necessarily in the best way um, 
growing up in Heidelberg and coming from Moree, those are two, yeah, <laughs> those aren't the best places. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just like that, that was the support that I wanted to kind of keep for them. Um, just making sure that I would be around um, at a time when not just my mum was passing away, but a couple months before, um, brother boy, very close cousin of mine, um, passed away. So it was just like, it's, you know, and you see it a lot in our community, but just at that time, these are two people that really held me to myself and, and the area that we were living in. And to lose them was almost like losing a lifeline, you know, one of those people being the main person in my life. Like, I never knew my dad, so my mum was my mum and my dad. Um, losing her and then losing Brother Boy, who was the first one to ever kind of give me that empowering, you know, stance firm, like, behind me in the community that... I was growing up in um, and let me kind of face my fears and, and gave me that strength, like borrowing a bit off him. So those are two people that I felt like had the biggest impact in my life at that time. And to lose them um, in succession of each other, that was extremely hard, you know? And then that's just from my perspective. Now, I've got three younger brothers. Um, oldest out of them is 17 right now. And I'm only 22, so I'm going through not just the court system, like at the last, you know, m my last charge. Um, it was really looking towards my old people and, and the people that were in community to kind of let, let me know that I had a hand and it wasn't just, you know, my mum's. Um, it was like Arnie Pam Pattinson, who's still like real deadly <laughs> and still going out and, and you know are we allowed to swear i don't want to <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's she you know she's still doing her shit like you just seen her in fed square she going mad um and you know just someone like that with with that kind of strength behind me helping me out through Corey court um that really made me have a different kind of outlook towards my life. Like me and my brothers were also separated, so that's a child protection system. Um, after our mum passed away, we were growing from house to house and, and trying to figure out a space until um, I kind of just said, nah, like, you know, fuck it. And I, I left the last placement that I was at and continued to do stuff in the streets. Um, but that also, split the gap a lot further because my little brothers went with, you know, the white side of their family. Um, and they're still with them today. Rest in peace to their pop that passed away. Um, but they're still with their nan. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's it's difficult in itself um, just because they might not have those connections to community. So I was then that connection to community. Um, so yeah, that's that's like the whole step-by-step <laughs> -step shit. It's like real hard um, just to try and s stay out of the streets and, and just keep myself alive and also be that lifeline for them to be able to hold on and know that they're supported not just without mum, but 
like the little things, telling them stories about mom, just knowing that they they don't have to rely on their own memories, which could be very limited, um, but they can live vicariously through me. And, you know, just little little things like that to make sure that they know that they're still loved and, and they are loved, you know, even if mom isn't here, like, it's, it's a hand. Um, and the second part of that question is, I'm still trying to pull my life together today. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a long road. Um, I was in care uh, till the day before I turned 18 and everything that I did while I was in care, like finding my own place to move out. I'm completely independent, you know, and just had to be. Um, but that's just a testament to my mom's strength and, and everything that she kind of read me with, so, yeah. Mm. I'm still moving, bro. <laughs> still trying, you know. But I'm up here with these Hi. deadly mobs, so that's mine. You're doing amazing. Yeah, um, trying. If no nah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you know that, and uh, yeah. I'm... And your brothers are really lucky to have you. I lost my dad when I was very little and it's important that um, memories are kept alive and yeah. those stories and um, they're very lucky to have you and your mum's very lucky to have had you as her son and providing that connection and I know your story is difficult but, um, you know, life's a journey and step by step you'll get there. 100%. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I've got faith, Jonathan. Chelsea, you recorded a speech uh, for Vowser's webinar um, on the dangers of criminalising coercive control and it was fantastic, it was direct and it was truthful. Um, and it had a huge positive reaction. What is your advice for Aboriginal women who want to speak up for themselves and their community? Um, I think um, just remembering that, you know, there's, with all the talk of truth-telling, um, for black fellas, um, truth-telling is not just a matter of like facts and statistics and evidence base. Um, when black fellas in this place speak the truth, it is inciting violence, particularly from the state and those who seek proximity to it. Um, it is to put yourself in the firing line and make yourself a bigger target than we already are. Um, and I, um, but at the same time, um, we've got to do it. Um, we have a responsibility to tell the truth, tell those stories for the generation that comes after us, and and um, and it's worth it. Um, you know, I've I've um, most of my work now gets has to do a defo read on it, um, whether it's an academic paper or an op-ed, um, and it's just that's just part of the game now. Um, and I've learned how to navigate that process a bit better than the first few times. Um, but I, I, I find great joy in being able to, um, to, to have that truth told despite their best efforts to silence us. Um, so look at the next issue of Mianjin. Um, the Medical Journal of Australia refused to publish um, a story that told the truth about the violence of the health system upon mob here. Um, <laughs> so I, I find, I think there's great joy to be found, even though you make a bigger target on your back. Um, the joy that comes with... Um, uh, telling the truth about this place, um, uh, it gives me strength. Um, even though the stories are hard, um, I think that, um, you know, what a great responsibility to carry to be able to 
to tell them stories. Um, and I guess I get a bit annoyed. I think there's a conservatism in the academy despite our indigenising moment. And, you know, black academics, um, I think, um, need to step up in the truth-telling um, because mob are telling the tr truth on the streets, um, yet in the academy there's still this kind of reluctance um, to speak about um, the violence of this place, to tell the truth about that, particularly in the Indigenous health research space where there's... We keep telling stories about um, illness and disease and health literacy and health behaviours as somehow we're complicit in our own deaths um, and we need to be... Um, the role of the black academic in this time is so very important to help inform some of the political and legal responses that are happening right now. Um, and it's mob outside of the academy that are doing the heavy lifting. Um, and I think I occupy a very privileged, privileged position as an academic, which I take very seriously. Um, and I feel like, you know, we're in the, in the business knowledge production and the least we could be doing is telling the truth um, about this place. Um, so, yeah. Just tell the truth, despite the cost. Yeah, I mean, especially in the health space where um, we see Aboriginal people losing their lives, and particularly Aboriginal women um, at the moment in prison, um, yeah. our, our mob don't have equivalency of healthcare, and it's costing lives. Yeah. I mean, in custody, but also in the colony, there are you know mm. the, the number of mob being turned away from emergency rooms and not being examined properly and dying of preventable conditions. Um, that's the story of that violence is is not being told um, mm. and needs more attention to. Um, and it's in every state, men, women and children. Yep. Um, and that's one of the stories MJA refused to publish in their special issue, Invited Editorial on Systemic Racism. Um, yeah, so I'm still sour about it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's coming. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, people don't understand the extent of the violence in this place. Um, and it's, it's in custody, yes, but in every institution in this place from child safety to Mental the health, health system to the education yeah. system. It's everywhere. And if we're not speaking about that violence, then what's the point of being here? Because mm. it's not going to stop unless we do. Um, and I just think, yeah, we need to be more courageous when it comes to it and, and you know, find the joy in the fight, um, in, in, in fighting for the people that we love mm. and the people that we lost. Mm. Why do you think we lost it, though? Because if you think... If you think about like um, our protest kind of days and um, where really all of our ACOs and organisations come from and a lot of our rights creation, what happened between then and now where it seems like you are ostracised or put to the side if you're speaking truth um, or characterised as an angry black person? I mean, I think black fellows have always been demonised for that position, but I find that there are increasingly more black fellows suggesting that we be quiet. And I just think, you know, the last 20 years after the abolition of ADSIC and disbanding of um, black collectives in this country, um, black fellas running community services and organisations where we were coming together and we had some sort of sense of at least elected officials to organise and strategize. we've had 20 years of closing the gap where, the, where the, the premise of is that whiteness is the norm that we must aspire to. And sadly, some of our people have, have, have come benefited from that arrangement or are aspiring to that goal and have forgotten that that's not what we're here for. 
um, have forgotten that settler colonialism is an ongoing project of violence that we have to fight against. Um, and so there's, I think, and there have been opportunities in all the indigenising moments across various institutions that if we, um, with the first of her tribes, um, getting into position of power, that somehow the fight is over. Um, and it's, it's so not. Um, what we now have is people in positions of power and institutions that are telling the rest of the natives to be quiet and, uh, you know, ostracising us for that. My experience at the University of Queensland is a case in point. Um, and this is at a time where we had Indigenous PBCIEs running these institutions. Um, and so we've got now a fight sometimes with our own mob um, to, um, to, to, to speak up. Um, but sadly, um, there are too many benefiting from seeking proximity to the state and its institutions. And they get paid very well for it. Uh, <coughs> Jonathan, you share your story through your music and over the last decade we've seen a lot of Aboriginal hip-hop artists be really successful telling their stories through their artistry. Do you think that Aboriginal hip-hop artists are influencing the way non-Indigenous people understand us? And do you think about your music as a political act? I'll answer the last one first. Um, I think us being alive today and continuing strong, striving, is in itself a political act. So yes, um, but to answer the most, um, it will be, yeah, like it's accessible completely. Anyone can go on their phone right now, search up Baker Boy, search up Barker, search up, you know, any, search up Blackfella music, like, <laughs> there's, um, there's Black Australia playlists on Spotify now, like, there's so many different ways that you can just jump in and take that edge off of black followers, especially on times like NAIDOC week where it's about us trying to make sure that we can be happy as black followers and get that edge taken off of us where it's just like, oh, what can I be doing better during NAIDOC week? What can I go out and do? It's like this follows sharing so many resources already, um, going and listening to these artists and following their pages, you're already going to see so much and access so much information. So it just takes that extra edge off of having to be the resource giver every time someone walks into Cloven and Gaps and, and ask, yeah, by the way, I actually, I work there, so this is my actual experience too. Um, when certain white followers walk in and, and they sit down for a bit, you know, they'll browse around, turn around and look at me and be like, oh, you black, yeah? It's like, well, I work in the space, bros. What do you want to know? And then it goes into like, what can I be doing? Or it's mm. so good that you guys have been here. How long have you been here? Oh, this is the first time I've ever seen a shop painted. Like little situational things like that, which just, it's so draining to be honest, to have to kind of explain and, and be able to like articulate, these are the things that you can do better. It's just like research. You know, a little bit of pulling out your phone and, and using social media and these different websites to go out and know what's out there. Being active in your community, not being a passive sharer um, and knowing where the boundary is and not overstepping that boundary with blackfellas and mob when we're just trying to participate and, and have fun in our skin, you know, especially on times like this. Um, yeah, it, it lets you know that... You can support us in different ways. There's, there's so much, like, you know, from, from books 
another day in the colony. Support, read the book. Um, Fallon Gregory, like online, social media, you know, uh, all the way to jumping on, like, you know, just, <laughs> there's so much stuff that you can do right now. Like, it's not just music, but music is just a gateway. You go from music to poetry, you go from anything music related, what's music used for TV, there's Black Fellas in TV, that's a resource for yourself. There's so many documentaries. Like, there's so many different ways that you can access knowledge and have to take that edge off of black fellas just living an everyday life. So, yeah, 100%. Like, it's, it's something that's quick, easy. Um, it lets you know that you're supporting, like, black music. It lets you know that you're supporting a black fella on their journey, you know? It's not like those World Vision ads back in the day, like, support. <laughs> Two dollars in... Come on, Brad. Like, you can do it yourself, bro. It's the easy way. So, yeah, jump on your phones, you know. Either listen to my shit, listen okay. to some other black followers. Like, it's, it's a resource within itself, and it lets you know that it's, you know, it, it's supportive, good ways, and it's not a shame job when you're walking in and having to get that one black fella who is now the spokesperson for all mob <laughs> who can tell you everything about being black. Like, your phone, it's a resource, thing. Um, yeah. For inquiring minds uh, in the audience, Jonathan, where can they find your music? Oh, don't message me being like, no. <laughs> um, you can, so my links are literally just under the same old, um, my, my handle's like at M-O-B, C-A-U-T-I-O-N at Mob Caution. Simple, plain, yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Better way. <laughs> uh, April, you've become an expert in a lot of how the legal system deals with Aboriginal Islander people. As you know, there's been over 500 of our mob who have died in custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal in Custody and no one has been held to account, despite many tries. For any of those deaths through a criminal conviction, what are some of the ways the legal system prevents mob from getting justice and why is it important for us to keep standing up and demanding justice? Yeah, um, isn't that horrific? 500 that we know of, because you know that they're not actually all documented. 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and not one person has been held responsible since the Royal Commission, which was prompted by... Aboriginal people dying in custody. That's like having everybody in this room being killed by the state more because I don't even know how many people are sitting in this room and not having anybody responsible for it. Like it just, it's it's not something that would happen but it's something that happens to blackfellas and it's just that continuation um, of the ignorance and ignoring the humanity of blackfellas, mm. um, you know, by the institutions, by the government, um, and, you know, it obviously feeds into that way they will not address systemic racism. They will not address systemic racism. You know, they benefit from it. Um, you have a look at the coroner's court. Mum's case, they included systemic racism. That was the first time in the nation that they had allowed um, a death in custody to examine it. How? How in 2019 is that the first time that you're actually allowed to talk about racism when this colony is literally built on racism, on the blood, sweat and tears of blackfellas? Um, the coroner's court, you know, that is 
one of the institutions that actually needs to be critiqued. Um, you have police investigating police and you have the coroner directing that police investigator on how to conduct the investigation. So when that police officer comes back with an inadequate investigation, is the coroner really going to sit there and be like, you know, you could have done better because the police investigation, like police investigator is actually a reflection of the coroner. It's a reflection of the system, isn't it? So it's sort of just like that constant just, yeah, the ignoring of what's actually happening to our mob because what's happening to us is it's benefiting them. Um, we look at the laws that are disproportionately impacting mob, you know, like you've seen the one that had been introduced recently. Um, public drunkenness was one of those that was um, examined in the Royal Commission one of those deaths was of Uncle Harrison Day, which is another one of our family members who was picked up for a $10 unpaid fine of public drunkenness. Um, and he was arrested actually while he was sober. They put him in Chuka Police cell. He died from an epileptic fit. So that was back then in the Royal Commission, had been recommended to be abolished. It didn't. Throughout the years, you know, it was something that had been ignored because it impacts blackfellas um, and they had failed to act on that until we get to 2017 and mum is arrested for being a black woman asleep on a train you know she dies in custody 10 minutes later they drive a white woman home still still fine today didn't get fined you know and um, it's it's these sort of things that are constantly impacting our mob and that they fail to address they fail to acknowledge us they fail to acknowledge our life while we're here and they fail to acknowledge us while we're gone. And, um, you know, we've, we've got a Royal Commission report that actually has all of the answers in ways that we could end Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, it addresses things like bail reform, um, discriminatory laws, um, racism, systemic racism, it, lot, biggest mob. Um, and they can speak to it and they can say that they have implemented those but they haven't. <laughs> I know that <laughs> um, because I still have multiple family members dying in custody. My friends still have their family members dying in custody and we're still, you know, advocating and fighting in the streets. Um, and, you know, they can talk about, you know, things that they've implemented, but implementing something and ensuring that it's meaningfully implemented are two very different things. You know, making sure that things are adequately resourced and that they are set up with Aboriginal governance and self-determination to ensure that they actually are successful is very different to the Gammon report that they put out and said that they have, you know, rec like that they had, you know, well, I can't remember the percentage of it because I just looked at it and I thought that's the biggest joke. But they tried to say that they did their job and they yeah, didn't. There's, there's some contentiousness around... Yeah. Uh, the reports that looked into the implementation of Rikidek, um, and I don't, I don't think anybody with any credibility would put stock in any of them. Yeah. Um, that say that there was meaningful implementation of majority of them. It's just ridiculous. And when you look at, um, I think 
part of it also is just not around just implementing Rickardick. It is until you grapple with the nature of this settler colony and the inherent violence within it, you will not prevent deaths in custody. Mm. Um, you know, we had, if you look at our history, first we had the massacres upon invasion, um, then we had missions, then we had removals. Like at every point, institutions have committed violence. This is just a new phase of it, a new evolution. That's what the justice system is, an evolution of that violence which started long ago. Um, and happened to our ancestors. And even, I think, in Mum's case, <coughs> there was, you know, systemic racism was in scope of inquiry, the coroner refusing to see it, both exactly. with that comparator as well as the statistical um, comparator, just yeah. refused to see it despite the evidence base. Exactly, because what is she going to critique? The very system that they are a part of, the coroner's court, the fact that they shouldn't be letting invest like police investigating their own, and the fact that... It's literally police officers that are killing blackfellas. And then that's the violence of the criminal process, right, yep. is the preventable deaths are deemed inevitable. You know, yep. this is the new dying race. And, and the coroner's court sustains that theory, whether it's the natural causes explanation from in, in the hospital system um, to, to this. Like, it's just... And it's, it's so violent, yet this is the only place families can go to to try and get some answer. And mm. the process yeah. itself is violent. Mm. Yeah, and then but they might get an answer, but it's often enough it's not the truth. Yeah. Um, well, the conclusions they get the, the evidence gets put up, but the conclusion the coroner makes itself becomes violent because they refuse to see the evidence, mm. and we're seeing to a lot of these coroner inquiries nil recommendations. Mm. And then there's yeah. no oversight of those recommendations to make sure they've been implemented. Right. There, there is no linkage to make sure that it's it fantastic. doesn't happen again, um, yeah. and you know. At any point in time, states don't have to wait for a coroner to tell them what they've done wrong. That's right. The answer is there, but often enough they'll refuse to act and delay, knowing that at any point in time another Aboriginal person could die in custody in those exact circumstances. Um, it is... And see, I mean, this is the problem with presuming the state cares about a declining black pop population. You know, I mean, terra nullius. They've always wanted us to disappear um, and have never let go of that idea. A hundred percent. So I think we could talk about the justice system I forever. I could. <laughs> it's my job. Uh, Chelsea, while we're on you, um, in your book, again, available for purchase tonight, <laughs> you reference a lot of black music and black intellectual thought. Um, there are sections where you blend discussions um, of people like Briggs um, and W.D. Du Bois really beautifully. Can you talk about why it was important for you to put art and academia in the same pedestal and weave them together? Well, I think our, um, you know, our, our greatest um, black race theorists are not in the academy. Um, they're on stages um, in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, the, the most... Um, um, the person who most influenced influenced me around race was my dad and he was a truck driver and, you know, and worked in a foundry. Um, and so I never subscribed to the idea that the only people capable of knowing are those that have got a PhD. Um, and in fact, when it comes to race in this place, there are very few academics willing to do that intellectual work um, and refusing to do it, um, whether it's health or humanities. And, um, and so there's not a whole lot of theorising around race going on in the academy. Um, you know, listen to um, Sis talk, like, 
an understanding of how the state works and, and like, our theorists are here, everywhere. And it's a real, I think, um, disservice we do to our people when we don't recognise the thought wherever it is situated. Um, and, you know, those of us who say we're here about, it, you know, about privileging Indigenous voices and knowledges and perspectives, then we need to recognise that theorising is not in the peer-reviewed journals that we're told we have to source. Um, our knowledges are everywhere and can be found anywhere um, and we must credit that thinking um, and, and amplify that thought because we've all been beneficiaries of it. Um, so I, um, you know, Vernon Aki, Richard Bell, um, the theorising around race in their work, like Barker's lyrics, you know? And, not, and what we find with black thinkers when it comes to race, it's not simply a description of, of trauma and oppression. Mm. There's a theorising and strategising about what the fuck to do about it. Mm. And that's what gives me strength, mm. you know? Um, but in our being and our knowing, and so, um, you know, the academics often will describe a problem, but often don't have the answer about what to do with it beyond giving us a special issue on something. Um, you know, but mob are doing the work. Of doing the work and theorising race on the run because of the urgency in this place when it comes to racial violence. Um, and so we must um, not extract that knowledge and claim it as our own. We must amplify it, cite it, recognise it um, and honour that thinking um, that helps us all. And so it's just letting go of the idea of who's an authorised no and it's certainly not the the academic in, in universities. It's mob on the streets everywhere, every day in this place. Mm. April, you're a member of War and Pay the Rent and the Dajwa Foundation doesn't take fundings we're talked about. Can you talk about the strength of community action and grassroots activism? Oh, it's everything, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> um, grassroots community members, our elders have paved the way for us, you know, literally um, the backbone of our community, of society. Like, the work that we do, grassroots community members, benefits our community, but it also benefits white followers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, public drunkenness, for example, it may impact black followers the most, but it is also keeping your loved ones safe too. So you're welcome. You know what I mean? Like, mm. we do a lot. I, don't, I shouldn't have to actually do this. I'm tired. Like, that was my mum. Like, mm. why do I need to continuously talk about it? Why are the family members the ones that are always having to do the work that we spoke of? And that's why it's really important, like, for allies to actually stand behind us, not to stand in front of us. You know, you can walk beside us. You can be behind us and you can, you know, uplift our voices and all the rest of it. But... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of moments in time in history have have been born out of protests and and resilience and resistance. You know, NAIDOC, we're celebrating NAIDOC right now. NAIDOC is actually one of those things. Yes, we get together, we celebrate, but that's been born out of protest. Um, and you know, one like thing that I always speak about is the importance of family-led campaigning and family-led advocacy. Um, and the impact and the power that that could have because, you know, being a family member and actually achieving that systemic change with public drunkenness, I, that wouldn't have happened if anyone else had done it. You know, they, that public drunkenness and decriminalising that was not on Victorian government's radar. They could not care, you know. Um, and even when mum died, it still wasn't, you know, something that they were putting their hand up to do, but it was because we were campaigning 
It was because we were, you know, marching in the streets and we were talking at every invasion day, every NAIDOC, you know, doing door knocking, getting the petition, um, meeting with politicians, sitting down with the Attorney General. You know, those are the things that um, a lot of people don't actually see. You know, you, you'll come here and watch us have a yarn or you'll see me talk on TV, but no one actually understands the impact and how much work goes into um, things uh, to to achieve really just to, to keep our loved ones safe behind closed doors. But, um, yeah, I cannot praise blackfellas more, especially grassroots blackfellas that are, that are doing the work and do it so humbly and, you know, that are that base their work uh, with just love, strength and integrity. Like, it is so important and um, we've seen many families that have been able to achieve the systemic change from the work that they've done, just speaking their truth. You know, we've got my family, we've got Miss Dew's family, um, you know, Kumajai Walker's family, you know, before they had called for him to be charged, like, really unfortunate they didn't actually charge him for murder, but to be able to get to the point that they would put him on trial. You know, before that, there was, like, all those national protests around the nation. Um, there is a lot of power in it, um, but there's power in supporting blackfellas and uplifting them, but, like, you have to do the work too. Like, it's not just for us to carry the load, like, you're on stolen land, you know. Use benefit from our struggle as it has been for generations. Um, and yeah, it'll be nice if, you know, someone could take the load off us a little bit, you know, don't speak over us, um, just uplift us, support us, but, you know, do, do the work so you can help us do our work in community. Jonathan, in your music and activism, you're often very vulnerable with the audience and speak to the difficulties and trauma um, that you've mentioned today. Do you think that being vulnerable is an important part of being strong and standing up? 100%. Um, I think it's the main part, you know, even just speaking out and to having to go out and talk about the situation with your mum. You have to be vulnerable just to be able to get your foot in the door and go on social media or media or get all of these, you know. It's, it's something that you have to do. It's an integral part of going out and talking to people and having to establish a connection. You're only going to do that from your personal experience. So for me, it's, it's the only way that I've ever really known to write. It's the only way that I've ever really known to speak. Um, my mum was a very vulnerable person, very emotional person. Uh, I don't deal in star science and all that, but she was just mad. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, going off of that, you know, it's something that you have to keep in your mind. It's, it's black wellness, you know. You've got to make sure that you're not just putting yourself through that rigorous harm. It's continuous work and knowing that you're, we're starting from a place of trauma from, you know, conception almost and having to come out into this colony um, just to exist. It's pain. So there's trauma already and people lose their sight of what it means to actually, you know, you feel like intergenerational trauma is almost like a buzzword at these points in time, but it's intergenerational trauma within my pop being stolen and him not being able to stay home with, you know, the, the multiple kids that he's had because 
he just feels like he he can't be still. You know, it's it's something that's losing your meaning. You've got to know to distill these things down. It's it's not just intergenerational trauma. It's experience, and it's pain, and it's hurt, and it's passed off to children in the actions of the parents because they've had to go through that and they've had to deal with that. So that's a trauma that you get past to you, you know. Um, just in my mum's experience, it's it's something that she had to live with that was, gave, you know, really, it, it was continuous harm and something that she had to live with, you know. She was passed off and couldn't be raised by her mum. So I don't know what that could have done for a, a black woman, just having to rear up four kids who are all men, you know, all boys. Like, that that's a heavy burden to bear. And you really lose sight. And you've got to know that you have to ground yourself, take it back to the moment that you first felt these pieces of pain. It's, it's something that's going to linger and it's something that's going to fester um, until that point where, you know, you feel like you're going to snap. And I've had plenty of family members in my community that have resorted to suicide like my mum did it herself, you know. So if you don't address your trauma, if you, don't, if you do not take care of yourself and do not bring light and bring power to those situations that have left you with that trauma, um, then it's not going to end up good for you. You know, people lose themselves in drugs and alcohol all the time because they just cannot hold on to the pain that they're living with. Um, and I was very much heading in that direction. The only thing that pulled me out of that is being able to be vulnerable and write down my feelings, write down the exact feelings. In music, I'm, I'm very sp specific and, you know, whether or not it's wordy, using metaphors and similes and you, you go through and you figure out how to pinpoint those pieces of pain and put it down to a piece of paper. I said a lot of heavy peas. That was completely accidental. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you, you figure out how to articulate your emotion and your thought and you can pinpoint those feelings of pain. And when you put it to a piece of paper or a page, it's not just your burden to bear anymore because mm. it's a physical thing. It's something that I can pass to anyone on this stage. It's something that I can read to you. And it's shared energy at that point. You know, so it is something that you really do need to take care of. You never want to invalidate your experience, your prior experience, or the person that you are now. So you have to speak truth to power. Blackfellas is all about truth telling. And you've got to tell your truth. It's literally starting from within. So when you write down anything to a piece of paper, when you speak out, when you're on a panel like this, this is our truth, you know? And it's something that we're putting to power just from being here and existing. And it, it takes a toll on per, you know, any, any type of person, but especially blackfellas, um, going through the stuff that we have to, just being around and having to exist in the way that everything is set up literally to oppress. Um, so yeah, you, I'm 100% all about being vulnerable in my music. <coughs> And anything else, um, all about self-care, you know, self-love, 
not invalidating your experience, um, especially your experience as a black fellow in this, like how many ways can you say this? <laughs> and it's just, it's something that you really do need to look for, you know, it's, it's hard to, hmm. to articulate those feelings. So when you can, make sure that you're taking the time out to really be vulnerable with yourself and express yourself in the way that you feel happy to because it at least takes off some sort of that edge. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm only vulnerable because I, I don't care to say what's happened to me, you know. It's something that people need to know. And this story at the start, it's literally like it's one small part. There's, there's a lot more that's just right underneath the surface. But I, I'm able to speak about so many of those experiences just because I've been doing it for so long. And there's so many different parts of my life that I can speak to being a part of the justice system, going into these institutions, coming out, having people, you know, it's just so much shit. And a lot of the time you have to really work up to being able to express that because mm. it's important. Yeah. It's important to tell your truth. And there's power in it. And that's the reason that there's a hundred and something people booked out to come and listen to us. You know, it, yeah. No, thank you, Jonathan. I think that was beautifully uh, put and answered. And uh, I think that we have ushers uh, down the aisles if anybody would like to ask our three wonderful panel members, maybe not April, who is struggling, um, any questions. I don't know what happened there. Eh? Oh, so I think if you just put your hand up and usher will find you. Sorry, I didn't think they were going to pick me. Um, thank you so much for um, having us here today and thank you for all your remarkable work. Um, I just had a question about um, what you all think about accountability um, within the space that we work with um, and how to do that. I think you spoke a lot about um, having joy in the work, um, but I think part of, you know, um, working together, it inevitably will have conflict. So, like, what, yeah, how does that look like to stay accountable to each other and, yeah, keeping the community sustainable? Thank you. Um, well, if I think about accountability in um, the work I do when it um, comes to race, I guess, is um, it is about relationships with the people who, who you're doing work for. And that's often not your colleagues. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I value relationships and um, uh, much of what I do is relationship-based, despite what you may feel of me on Twitter. Um, but I really care about my relationships with mob. Um, and so at times um, I can be read as, I guess, confrontational um, or all kinds of ways, but... Um, the work I do when it comes to race, it's not extractive. So I'm in relationship with the people that I'm writing about. Um, we can't do it any other way. Um, and I will defend um, that um, as much as possible. And I think sometimes people aren't used to being accountable to those that they're meant to be of service to, um, particularly in the academy where we think that we can just extract to possess to know. Um, instead to be in relationship and to know how to better serve. Um, and so I'm accountable to black people um, and I'm not sorry about that. Um, and it means I may get people offside 
um, but I know whose side I'm standing on on any given issue. Mm. Um, and so um, I don't apologise for being accountable to mob. And I get held accountable. Like I get, people, I get roused on. Like it's, yeah. you know, um, we all get like roused on. Um, and then we reflect on it and we either take the learnings or we go, no. But uh, we're in relationship with, you know. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, for me, and it's, and it's a constant thing, a constant process of being in relationship with and reflecting um, and, yeah, knowing who you're accountable to. Um, I'm less interested in what my employer thinks about the work I do because it's the place I go to work. But who I do the work for is different to the place I go to work at. Mm. Yes. Um, and I'm okay with that. Like, gets me in trouble. But um, <laughs> we find ways to, to work around that. But, yeah, so, yeah, accountability is at the forefront of everything I do. Um, accountability to black people. Mm. Next question. Hello, thank you for this tonight. It's wonderful. It's helping me out with something I'm working on at the moment. Um, there's, uh, I, I suppose my question is around the media and the, their role in telling your stories because based on what you're talking about tonight, there's a lot of aspects to your story. It's, there's health, there's education, there's homelessness, there's um, deaths in custody and so on. Um, do you feel the media is, um, you're, you're connecting enough with the media uh, on these stories? Are they getting those stories out there or are they pretty much ignoring what you've got to say? <coughs> Sorry. Um, it's not COVID. I did a test this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Brisbane now and this Melbourne cold is not good for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like for me personally, like media is a huge issue. Like it just continues to perpetrate that violence. Um we have to work really hard in all spaces to be able to get our stories heard in the media. I know, like, for us with Mum, um, we were really fortunate and lucky to be able to have her story told um, in the way that it was, that it was across the nation, that it had actually reached international. Um, but why should I feel lucky that mm. people are addressing the fact that Victoria Police killed my mother? Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, it's... That's really unfortunate and um, it's a journalist's job to actually work with integrity and who do you want to be? You know, what stories do you want to tell? <coughs> um, do you want to sleep at night? That sort of thing. Um, we have some really great relationships with journalists that tell the story and, you know, ensure that the family's voice is centred and it's told in the way that it, it should be. But then you get other journalists that do not care to do anything but to completely rip families' lives apart. Um, Kumanjai Walker, for example, that poor fellow was put on trial for his own yeah. murder, mm. you know, and that happens with a lot of us um, and that shouldn't be the case and that's why we work so hard to humanise our loved ones, which we shouldn't actually have to to be appeasing white followers, but it's also to remind everybody who my mum was, you know, her favourite colour was pink, you know, she was a deadly cook. Um, she wore heels to my daughter's, like, second birthday, jumping on, like, on a jumping castle. Like, you know, those little <laughs> details paints who she was <coughs> and what we lost. I'm sorry, I'm dying. 
But, I mean, just to add, I mean, the journalist is as violent as the, as the police officer in the stories they tell, and the accounts are always identical. When you look at what the, what the police officer will put in their account and what gets published on front-page news, they're the same story. Um, so this is not a matter about blackfellas getting access to media to have our stories told. It's about calling out the violence of mainstream media. Um, and learning from um, black journos who are doing the work, Amy Maguire's work, um, yep. you know, uh, and the work she's pushing around black justice journalism, but who are few in number because we get our, our black journos have to work in mainstream media and are told to be neutral and objective and impartial as if the settler journalist is, is ever impartial and objective and neutral. They're always violent. Um, and so we, you know, we have a problem here around um, uh, supporting our black journos to still be black in the course of their work um, and not be rendered biased because they happen to be black. Um, but there are black journalists who, like uh, Amy, Ellen Clark, who have fought to be able to tell our stories differently and mainstream media needs to learn from black journalism about how to do journalism properly. Hmm. Hmm. I would love to keep taking your questions, but the red screen hey. that I can see is probably going to start screaming or blinking at me if I keep going. <laughs> and I'm rather intimidated by it. So uh, thank you first uh, to everyone for a wonderful discussion tonight. Um, I'm honest, honestly just amazed and wowed to be able to share this stage with each of you and to have heard your contributions and I'm sure, uh, like me, uh, people are going to be taking home a lot of thoughts and a lot of thinking. Uh, so, everybody, please join me in giving a round of applause to our wonderful and amazing panellists. This was Narita Waite in conversation with Chelsea Watego, Jonathan Binge, a.k.a. Caution, and April Day during NADOC Week 2022 on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event took place on the 5th of July 2022 at the Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.